0: This episode is brought to you by Case Filters. Look, I travel the world with my camera, and I can use any photography filter I like, and I've tried them all. In recent years, however, I've landed on Case Filters. That's Case with a K, K K-A-S-E. Case Filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get a 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code burnaby10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and coupon code burnaby10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case Filters capture with confidence. Hi, I'm Richie Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I usually speak with inspiring people from around the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. But in this episode, however, you'll be hearing just one lonely voice behind the mic, and that would be mine. I am literally about to walk out the door, get on a plane, and hopefully take an uneventful flight back to Africa. From where it seems, I just returned. I have a stop in Morocco, with my ultimate destination being Kenya and the Masai Mara Reserve in East Africa. for Some personal wildlife shooting with my friend Benson, who's a Maasai guide and a tent reserved at the Lorien Safari Camp. Thanks to them for making this possible. And I thought it would be a good idea before I ran out the door to share some of my thoughts on how I prepare for such a trip. The gear I'll be taking with me, some of the strategies I'll use once I'm in the Land Cruiser and photographing the the charismatic megafauna of the African Savannah. So my MacBook Pro is open, I haven't packed it yet, It's still running and as you can hear, the mic is plugged in and it's powered on. So without further ado, let's get started. I think I'll separate this into three parts. Let's call the first preparation. The second will be gear and that's photo gear specifically. And then the third will be some strategies and approaches I take while on a photo safari. So the first part of preparation is deciding on location. And this I've already done. The Maasai Mara, often referred to as just the Mara, and the Serengeti are basically the same location, the same area. It just happens to have a political border that runs through it, with the Serengeti being in Tanzania to the south and the Mara in Kenya in the north. It's the same ecosystem. And this area is iconic for big game viewing and photography, especially if you're into big cats, which I am. Now, there are many, many other superb safari locations within Kenya alone and throughout Africa, for that matter. Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, Namibia, South Africa. I'm sure I'm leaving something out. But there is a certain energy in the Mara and in the Serengeti too, but particularly I feel it in the Mara. There are predators everywhere. Every animal you encounter is on edge, is hyper alert, is hyper aware. There's a certain electricity in the air that I don't quite sense as strong in other areas of wild Africa. Even in Amboseli in the south of Kenya, which I love, by the way, for elephants, there are fewer cats, fewer predators, and the animals appear fractionally more relaxed and less on edge. In the Mara, there is a palpable tension. There's a potential life or death drama possible at any moment. I mean, you can literally feel it and see it in the body language of the animals that you see, and there are many. So I've decided on the Masai Mara. It's my sixth visit, I believe. So why am I going in September? The Mara is very close to the equator. So the days are all nearly about the same length in terms of the amount of daylight. That doesn't change. Temperatures are moderated because of the elevation, which is about 5,000 feet. So we're looking at temperatures in the mid-50s Fahrenheit at night and in the early morning, with highs in the low to mid-80s during the day with low humidity. That's not too shabby. I mean, that's also year-round. So what to look for in terms of times of year or season? Two things, the rainy and the dry seasons. There are actually two rainy seasons in the Mara, a short rainy season in November, December, and then a longer rainy season approximately March through May. The long, cool, dry season in the Mara is about June through October. And the latter months of the dry season are my absolute favorite. So September is perfect in my book. June and July usher in the dry season, but the grasses are still very tall and very green from all the rain the Mar had just received. And that tall grass can be an, an impediment or obstacle, the photographic animals, particularly the smaller ones. So that gets in the way, but after a couple months of, of dryness, the savanna gets parched, the grasses turn yellow and golden, and the grazing antelope species and the wildebeest and the zebra has shortened the turf a bit. It's perfect for photography conditions. That's why September is when I'm going. Some people ask about the migration, particularly in the Mara. And what they usually mean by that is the Mara river crossing with its tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of wildebeest and zebra crossing the river, crocodiles lying in wait, that drama. But the migration is always happening. And it's like a big circuit, a circle. And July just happens to be when they make it to the Mara river and they have to cross. The exact timing can be tricky. You might plan your visit around the crossing, yet spend an entire week just watching animals standing around on the riverbank, waiting for just the right time. I've done this once. It's very crowded, it's expensive. And to be honest, I'm kind of over it. I'll take September any day. And now onto my gear. And we're going to talk photo gear here. I know I've been very honest in the past about photography gear being my least favorite subject to talk about and I hope I've not been too high-minded or sounded too pretentious when I've made those pronouncements and if I have I apologize I do realize talking about gear is necessary I just find it kind of boring but it is necessary photo gear is necessary we couldn't do photography without it we literally could not do photography without photography gear camera lenses etc so here's what i'm bringing with me to Kenya. Two Canon R5 camera bodies. They're mirrorless, 45 megapixels, 20 frames per second using the mechanical shutter, 30 with electronic, eye detection and AF tracking. It's almost a perfect wildlife camera for me. Plenty of pixels for cropping, continuous high speed drive, quick, accurate autofocus. Now you might be asking why too? For the beginners out there, look, things break. Things malfunction. Things sometimes quit working, either through my own carelessness or through no fault of my own. Particularly delicate and sensitive electronics exposed to the elements. The way I use camera equipment outdoors. If your camera fails in the middle of the Masay Mara, there's nowhere out there to get a replacement. Always bring two. Prepare for the worst possible scenario because sometimes the worst possible scenario is reality. There's another reason for bringing two camera bodies as well, and I'll get to that in just a minute. Now onto lenses. Obviously, for a wildlife photography trip, an African wildlife safari, I'm bringing a telephoto lens, at least one. I'm going to say this straight out of the box. I am done with prime lenses, particularly telephoto primes. Again, if you're new, a prime lens has a fixed focal length, a 500 millimeter F4 or a 400 millimeter F2.8. They're both prime telephoto lenses. These are beautiful lenses. They're big, they're gorgeous, they're sharp, they're regardless of the brand you use, but they're also inflexible. They're not versatile. And the variance in image quality between a prime and a zoom these days is almost zero. That wasn't always the case going back 20, 30 years ago, but now it is. The difference is negligible. The prime lenses I mentioned, for example, are for the most part faster than zooms. And what I mean When I say faster, I'm talking about the larger maximum apertures, but with the high ISO capabilities of today's modern digital cameras, that's not even a big deal anymore. What these big primes do offer is a shallower, narrower depth of field, good for throwing the background out of focus, but that's about it. And I'm not even sure that's a big enough reason to give up the versatility of a telephoto zoom lens and the ability to creatively compose your subject, especially when you can't zoom with your feet, you're stuck in the vehicle. So I'll just set the table for my lens choices. I'm bringing two telephoto lenses on this trip. Both of them are Canon, unsurprisingly, not that that matters. One is an old Canon EF lens, a 200 to 400 millimeter constant F4 maximum aperture, with a built-in 1.4X teleconverter. So with a flip of the switch on the lens barrel, it goes from being a 200 to 400 millimeter F4 to a 280 to 560 millimeter F5.6. So the entire zoom range on that one lens is 200 millimeters to 560. It's very sharp, it's fast, it's a versatile zoom range i use a ef to rf adapter since it's an ef lens and i'm using a mirrorless body the downside it's big it's heavy it's the size of a 500 f4 prime but it's my favorite wildlife lens hands down i'll also be bringing a canon rf 100 to 500 zoom yes it's a bit redundant almost the same focal length as the lens I just mentioned. But this lens is smaller. It's lighter. It's more compact. The maximum aperture at 500 millimeters is 7.1. Not ideal. It's a bit slow, but I can use it for birds in flight and for panning. And it's so easy to handhold. Arms don't get tired. And if my 200 to 400 fails in some way, let's say i drop it out of the window, and my guide runs it over. I can use the 100-500 to 500 as a replacement, if necessary. And then there's one more lens, the Canon RF 24 to 105 millimeter. It's a great all-purpose walking around lens. This lens stays mounted on my second camera body. I'm going to keep it in the seat right next to me, just in case I want to go wide, or there's some awesome clouds, or a great sky, or to do an environmental portrait. See, I told you there would be another use for the second camera body. I have it right here next to me. I don't have to change lenses when the opportunity arises. No tripod for this trip. There's hardly a place for it. When I'm in the Savari vehicle, about 50% of my images are taken completely handheld while the other 50% are stabilized with a bean bag. Your guide will probably provide a bean bag if you ask, or you can bring your own. Just, just don't fill it until you arrive. It's a lot easier to travel that way. Fill it with beans or rice when you get to Kenya or Tanzania or South Africa or whatever. I like the inverted U shaped design, kind of looks like a bigger, heftier neck pillow in a way, except it's got a flat top. It's that same shape. I have a NatureScape skimmer sack, and it's, I've had it for, for ages. It's still available for sale on Amazon and B&H. Lenscoat makes one in this particular design, and so does The Vest Guy, which is a company that makes similar products. Don't fill them to 100%. 85 to 90% is just about right so that when you set your camera and lens on it, it sinks in a little bit and cradles it. I don't use a flash all that much anymore. I bring one just in case. I used to use one quite often, but I've grown to dislike the look, the effect that it creates. But there are some special esoteric situations where a flash can be used creatively. I have a Canon 430 EX3RT. And I use a better beamer flash extender, which is like a Fresnel lens to help throw the flash output in a narrower beam and project it a little further. I always bring a pair of binoculars with me on these safaris. Your guide's going to have a set. Your guide is going to be able to spot wildlife 100 times better than you. You can bet on that. But he's also driving. He's driving the vehicle. And sometimes he's on the radio. He's talking to other guides about possible sightings of of animals. So you can help. I just don't go on a safari without a good pair of binoculars. And right here beside me, packed in my Patagonia duffel, is my Swarovski NL 1032s. Expensive, but by far the best binoculars on the market. You want fast, durable, reliable memory cards. My R5 take the new CF Express Type B cards. I use Lexar Diamond Series because they are the fastest on the market. I shoot high-speed continuous and I can go through 35, 40 images in mere seconds and it never slows down and the buffer never fills. You can also use these cards as a backup for your images. You always want redundancy. So if you are downloading your images to your laptop, you can, if you have enough cards, keep the copies on the memory cards, or at least have an external drive and have a copy on your laptop. Always have a redundancy. Always have copies in two different places at all times. And when you travel, try to put them in two different bags. So if your camera bag gets stolen, you know, God forbid, you can always replace the camera equipment but you can't replace the images. So have a a separate copy of your images in your check luggage or some other place. So you always have two copies at all times. Filters, not really needed, honestly. Um, You know, as a wildlife photographer using long telephoto lenses, I'm always starved for light. I'm needing faster shutter speeds and trying to keep the ISO as low as possible. So if you're gonna use a filter, you better have a damn good reason for doing it. So, I do use a polarizing filter to remove glare from wet fur, for example, or an ND filter to slow down the shutter speed in bright light for panning, perhaps. I use drop-in filters for my 200 to 400. They these drop in near the lens mount by the camera body, but this is infrequent, hardly ever use filters. And then the rest, as far as what you decide to bring, is personal preference stuff, you know, clothes. Remember, I I said that it's cool in the mornings and warm during the day. I like wearing a light jacket. I have a barber jacket. It's called a barber Sanderling jacket. It's very light. It's perfect for those cool mornings and evenings. But it has a lot of exterior pockets, so it's almost like having a photo vest, but doesn't look nearly as dorky as a camera vest does. Bring a good water bottle, a stainless steel coffee mug or cup, a Leatherman multi-tool, a good knife. Like I said, this is all personal preferences. Then once you're in the bush, you're, you're in the Mara or you're in Serengeti, preferably before that, have a frank and honest talk with your guide. Let him or her know your expectations, your desires, make it known that you are there for photography. Big, big point. For most casual tourists on safari, guide is happy with a sighting or an encounter. A rhino, mark it off the checklist. Mark it off the checklist, either literally or figuratively. As a photographer, you need a lot more than that. Your guide might be experienced working with photographers. Or better yet, maybe they are a photographer themselves, or they're someone who takes an interest in photography. I found this to be the case quite often. Your guide needs to be aware that you want to see the animal's face, the eyes. And you need light sometimes on the eyes. You need to be aware of the background, you know, what the light direction, where it's coming from, the distance between you and your animal subject. And no, closer isn't always better. I mean, that's that's their initial instinct. Is, you know, tourists with iPhones, you got know, to get as close as possible. I'll get to that in a minute. Your guide needs to be continually moving the vehicle to get you in the best shooting situations and the best angles. So here are a couple points I like to make with my guide before we even begin. If it's someone I've never worked with before, first thing I like them to do is to anticipate, anticipate, anticipate. Don't react. Here's an example you're shooting a group of zebras um, and they're moving with you or at a 90 degree angle from where you're shooting. So you'll shoot and then they'll move up ahead of you. And then the guide has to drive up, you know, 20, 25 meters. And then you shoot again until they move up ahead again. And then you move up 25 meters and you just ad nauseum. Instead, ask him, where do you think they're going? And he might know, he might say, they're going to a water hole just over that hill. Great. So, why don't we go to the waterhole? Why don't we set up? Why don't we look at the possible backgrounds are going to be when they come over the hill? Let's look at the light direction and let's sit and wait for them to come to us. Much better shooting situation than trying to chase. Chasing is the worst thing you can do when you're trying to photograph wildlife chasing, chasing, chasing. Anticipate, let them come to you. Number two, I just mentioned this your guides instinct or tendency to want to get as close to the animal as possible. The closer, the better. And that's not always true. If a lion is a half a mile away, yeah, it's true. I want to get closer. (laughs) If the lion is 20 meters away, that's not necessarily true. I may not want to get closer. I like the visual compression a telephoto lens offers the shallow depth of field, the the background blurred out, the narrow angle of view. I want to keep my subject at somewhat of a distance. Plus, the closer the animal is to the vehicle, the steeper the shooting angle you need to use. I mean, you're basically, as, as the animal gets closer to the vehicle, you're shooting downward. The farther away it is, the shooting angle levels out. So it's more of a eye-to-eye perspective, which I prefer. Let your guide know what types of images you're interested in. High concept images like kills. Guides always assume this is what clients want. Kills. Hey, there's a cheetah feeding on an, an impala kill. Let's go, let's go. If it's the first time you've witnessed it, it might be cool. But does the experience offer any opportunity for artistic personal vision types of images. In my experience, it doesn't. I mean, not often anyway. Usually the head is down and they're feeding on the carcass and once in a while their heads will pop up with a bloody face. And that's the concept. That's the high concept I'm talking about. And that can carry the image just the concept alone. If that's what you're looking for, fine. Let your guide know that. If not, communicate that too. As for a shooting strategy or settings, I like to keep things simple. Shutter priority and auto ISO. Most of the time, there are exceptions. For 80% of my shooting situations, one one thousandth of a second is enough. Sometimes I want faster. I can override that by going to one sixteen hundred or two thousandth of a second. If the vehicle is completely still, and I'm in the vehicle alone, so there's not people moving around and it's rocking. The engine is off. The animal is basically stationary. I'll cheat and take it down to 1 500th of a second or 1 320th of a second. It depends. With auto ISO, the number will be higher during low light, early morning and late evening, and lower during the brighter daylight hours. Don't be put off by the higher ISO numbers early and late in a day. I and you would rather have sharp images with some noise than blurry ones. In other words, I'll take a sharp image with 8,000 ISO, than a blurry image at 800. Case closed. I use the eye detection AF tracking if there are no obstacles or impediments in the way. And if not, I'll use autofocus with a spot indicator that I can move manually. I have these two autofocus settings with shutter priority and auto ISO pre-programmed into my customizable shooting bank so that I can switch back and forth quickly and effortlessly. Use high-speed continuous autofocus, even if your subject is just sitting there motionless. The reason? The first image of the burst is more likely to be unsharp than, say, the second, third, fourth, and so on. That's because your finger was moving as it depressed the shutter release on that first image. The subsequent frames has your finger stabilized as it continues to press down and it's not moving. Just do it. Trust me. And back button focus, always disable focus on the shutter release button. That's the most important part. And focus with your thumb. If you've never done this before, you've never tried it before, and you wanna do this, do not start something this important and potentially catastrophic during the middle of a once in a lifetime bucket list trip. Practice many, many times beforehand so that it becomes muscle memory. During stressful and exciting moments, you might forget and defer to what you've always done, assuming you're focusing with the shutter half depressed and it won't focus at all. And then you're, all your shots are ruined. Again, trust me on this one. And look at the time. I really do have a plane to catch and I do have to run. I hope you've enjoyed this. I know I did. Please tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any suggestions or feedback on this episode. And if you enjoyed the show, a slight deviation from the usual format of a one-on-one interview please leave a review on Apple podcasts and a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you'd like to see from beyond the lens in the future you can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website beyond the here's the truth adventure and passion see you next time Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.